0: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.
1: Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton.
2: And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S excited, Karen, to be on our first podcast episode. We would like to welcome everyone to Hidden in Plain Sight, spelled S-I-T-E.
1: Yes, welcome.
2: And what part of our Project Noir Design Party. You can hear more about our our project at com. But uh, when we started in 2016, Karen, did you think we would end up here? No, I did not. We did not have podcast on our list. We talked about
1: presentations, tours, a book exhibits um interviews, video interviews, but we did not consider podcasting at all. so this is where we have landed uh thanks to gable media yes yeah. for uh Engaging us and asking us about sharing in this work and doing this podcast. Yes. So uh, we are excited that this has moved our project forward with the interview. Yeah,
2: we had a, a little bit of a learning curve, but that was helped out here locally in Detroit with us with the Detroit Podcast Lab, which was, which was sponsored by Futural Media and uh, WDET, which is a local radio station here giving voices to uh people of color in their own community, in their own space. Gave us uh, the kind of the framework of what it takes to do a podcast. And then working with Gable Media has actually elevated that to a new level. And we really uh, appreciate support and and confidence in building our voices. So thank you to both, uh, both of those entities for helping us get started in the podcast. Yes, thank you so much. And then we have an exciting guest for our first podcast.
1: Oh, my goodness. We could not have scheduled this out or planned this out any better. Right, right. (laughs) Today, we are talking with Kimberly Dowdell, who is uh, most recently was elected to serve as the 2024 National President of the American Institute of Architects, or AIA. Right, the first. Uh, The first Black woman. Yes. In that role, yes, yes, so our interview with her was actually done the day before it was announced that she was elected, so um, you'll hear a lot of that forward thinking and you know just wondering and waiting to hear what's gonna happen, but we are really excited to bring you Kimberly Daldell today
2: I mean. We, we've been studying history with our project, right, all of these years. And it felt like we were in the middle of making history when we are recording that podcast. Right. And it is that way with African-Americans and architecture, right? We're still making history um, with Kim being the first African-American woman. And that shows the importance of this work, right, for you to hear the voices of all of these architects that we're going to interview out of Michigan, Detroit uh, area. Some you have not heard before and some you have heard before. And we think it's the collective voice of hearing all of their stories will make this a positive podcast to, to follow. So keep listening.
1: Yeah, so we look forward to bringing you more people who are making history as we speak. Just a little bit about Kimberly Dowdell. She is a licensed architect uh, and a frequent speaker on the topic of architecture leadership diversity, sustainability, and the future of cities. She was the national president of the National Organization of Minority Architects for 2019 and 2020. And, you know, just during that pandemic time, she elevated the organization to a higher level, engaging more majority architecture firms and larger firms to participate with NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects, to increase opportunities for people of color and women and to uh, for them to have more equitable access to the building professions. Kim more than doubled the organization's membership while she was president uh, during that two-year period. And Kimberly is from Detroit. Yes. We are excited yes. that our, our first guest, with all of her accomplishments, uh, we're most excited, I think, that she is a Detroiter, making a national and international impact. Kimberly went to Cranbrook when she was living in Detroit, um, Cranbrook Kingswood School, and then she earned her Bachelor of Architecture at Cornell University and her Master of Public Administration at Harvard University.
2: I mean, it was an honor to serve under Kim on the NOMA board during her presidency just to see her, like I said, the organization was growing at a rapid rate, us looking at our membership numbers, her starting the uh, NOMA President Circle, engaging the large front roundtable, just a number of things she did as a leader and really opened a door to now NOMA being uh, a part of the six collaterals and now part of those meetings in the and moving architecture and diversity forward it's just powerful the work that was started while we were all virtual right as a board moving things together and still moving the organization during the pandemic it's just remarkable the, the leadership that uh Kim demonstrated during that that critical time leaving us for a little bit here in Detroit we you know kind of missed that but uh she moved on to Chicago now and is at HOK there it's just um Great to see her continue to flourish and uh, move. But we, we get a chance to see her here at home. You know, her family's still here. So we it to Kim still in Detroit. So we appreciate still having our Detroit connection with her.
1: Well, in addition to, um, you know, working at HOK and being president of NOMA and president-elect of uh, AIA, Kim also co-founded the Seed Network, SEED, in 2005, Wow, that was 17 years ago that she founded that organization, and she is also a lead accredited professional for the past 15 years, so let's get into it. Talking to Kimberly Dowdell.
2: You know, one of the UNESCO cities of design. We always like to start out with our first question. Tell us your your Detroit design story and where your architecture career began.
0: Yeah, well, actually, I'm gonna um, start a little bit earlier than that, just for context, because okay. uh, okay. you know, architects like context, right? <laughs> so when I was like a little little kid, I decided I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. By little little, I mean like maybe five, six, seven ish. And then I had sort of a mid childhood. Epiphany, so we're talking like age eleven, where I uh, was specifically looking at the Hudson's department store, which a lot of people uh, you know who grew up in Detroit uh, are familiar with. It was actually closed the year that I was born, so I never actually got to experience it as a place to shop. But I always heard you know my older family members, you know reference visiting Santa or just shopping and and just the whole experience of the Hudson's apartment store right on uh, Woodward Avenue in downtown Detroit. I experienced the outside which was by the time uh, I came around was able to like really you know notice things and and put two and two together I realized that the building was boarded up you know had graffiti broken windows all the things that are indicative of disinvestment and I didn't know the word disinvestment at 11 but I just knew like this was like not good cuz you know as a kid I watched TV and and saw movies and other cities didn't have downtown buildings that that looked like that. And so it triggered in my mind this notion like Detroit can and should be better. And I had just learned in a middle school art class what an architect did. So that's what sort of prompted me to take a look at the Hudson's apartment store and say, I want to become an architect so I can fix this building and help improve the city of Detroit, which, you know, at that time in the early nineties was really struggling with a lot of different things from crime and, you know, again, disinvestment and blight and and so many things that you know, unfortunately, communities of color are, are so uh, used to, to navigating. So I've always seen architecture as a sort of means of healing, but in a different way. So it's almost like being a doctor, but at a much larger scale.
2: One little thing you said really caught my ear was you did have someone you came across in middle school who told you what an architect was.
0: Yeah, my middle school art teacher. Nice. Yeah. So in fact, she gave us a little uh, exercise. She gave us all a shoebox. And said, take some, you know, little blocks or carpet samples and, you know, just little pieces that she had available and make an apartment. And so I made a little apartment out of the shoebox. And that kind of like, you know, sparked the whole architecture thing. Oh, technically that's interior design. But the point is, you know, I learned what an architect did in that moment.
2: I think that's really cool because, like I said, mine was like more of a like discovery research kind of thing of finding out what an architect was. But mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. You had a project really. Yeah. So with Detroit being a city of design, you know, what, what do you think about how design is treated now in, in Detroit and really moving the needle for some of that disinvestment that you saw?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Detroit is definitely elevating design. You know, there are lots of organizations and companies that are talking about design in much more meaningful and robust ways than certainly when I was growing up. Um, so I'm, you know, really excited about what's been happening, particularly over the last five, 10 years. You know now that more investment is coming into the city, there's obviously more opportunity to help improve the the built environment. And so i I think it's important that those funds are uh, utilized downtown as they as they are to kind of you know really strengthen the commerce center of the city, but also to get to the neighborhoods because the people of Detroit across all one hundred and thirty nine square miles definitely deserve you know access to not just quality design, but, you know, safe places in which to live, work and play. Um, And so as architects, you know, our our duty is to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public. And I think that by uh, elevating design, I think that that's one thing. And it's it's critical, but also just to, you know, raise the awareness about the impact that buildings have and and the role that architects play in um, making sure that we all are in good, safe, clean buildings to facilitate the, the stuff that we do on a daily basis so
2: true I got interested in architecture because of art right and that was like what got me into it and then I I felt like I had to put together some type of real career to my mom with respect you know like (laughs) and and say okay you could do that that's a good profession but I know your family is just like deep rooted in art and the opposite of that is like did you ever meet like any historical architects that kind of came from Detroit or is it all like art influenced
0: I did not. No, it was all, it was all really art related. On my father's side, my father was an artist and my older sister uh, is an artist in Detroit as is her son, my nephew. And, you know, they they all have done some really interesting things and pretty uh, active in, in the Detroit art scene. And then on my mom's side, uh, actually, I have a great uncle who painted the Shrine of the Black Madonna, um, which a lot of people know about. And so when they hear my last name, they're like Dowdell, that sounds familiar. So his name was Glanton Dowdell. And then since I'm giving names, Sabrina Nelson's my sister, and my nephew's Mario Moore. So those are like kind of the three primary people that uh, in my family are kind of known in the, in the art world, at least locally, um, but also becoming more international, which is cool. So definitely building upon that legacy is is great. But, you know, as I mentioned, my my origin story is really my middle school art teacher, Miss Katie, who was just like, hey, like, let's build a, you know, an apartment. Um, And so that's what sparked the architecture piece. And, you know, I was certainly um, supported as an artist, as, um, you know, architects are a combination of artists and scientists. So I like to consider myself a bit of a hybrid.
2: That is totally amazing.
1: (laughs) From high school, how did you end up going to Cornell for college?
0: That's an interesting story. I always thought I was going to go to Michigan because, you know, it's just it's not far away. It's, you know, obviously a great school. And that was kind of like what was on the agenda. And then I happened to have gotten uh, what's called the Big Red Book from Cornell, just just like this big red promotional book. And it just had like the coolest stuff. And I remember being a junior in high school and be like, wow, this this place seems cool. And so I booked a Greyhound bus ticket with my mom. And in August of 2000, I, you know, we rode from Detroit to Ithaca, checked it out. I made an appointment with the admissions people and said, yeah, so could you tell me a little bit more about the school and you know, how, how all of that uh, stuff worked and long story short, it it worked out and I I got in actually, it was the only school I applied to uh, because I applied early decision because I mean, I came from very humble beginnings and I was like, all these application fees, like, why don't I just apply for one, see how it goes and then apply for more. So that's what I did. And luckily, I just did the one and it worked out.
2: Everything about your story is like totally different than people we've been coming across. <laughs> and and as far as in the research, I mean, it's like like a lot of people from Detroit who start off in architecture are using work for someone that's here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. like I said, apply to multiple schools. All your stuff is very like, like it's a direct path. It's uncharted territory. Yeah. I
0: mean, (laughs) I, and I mean, I'll just have to say like, I feel like in some ways it, it, um, at least it feels a little bit divinely ordered, like just the way everything has evolved. Like I can't even really explain it. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
2: (laughs) Sounds good to me.
1: (laughs) So from Cornell, you work, you worked in several cities, not just Detroit and not just Chicago. I've lived
0: in seven different cities.
1: Seven different cities. Okay. So tell us a little bit about where you live and how that's influenced uh, what you're doing now.
0: Yeah. Well, of course I started out in Detroit. Well, I guess technically now that I think about it, I was really eight. So I started out Detroit, uh, Detroit public school student, kindergarten through fifth grade. And then I uh, got a scholarship to go to a small middle school where I learned about architecture. Uh, in Redford. And then actually I got a scholarship to go to boarding school at Cranbrook. So technically I had lived in Bloomfield Hills for a period of time. And then I went off to Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is. Oh, actually I almost forgot, study abroad, that counts because I was there for six months. So I lived in Rome, Italy for, well, technically it was five months, but you know, we're splitting hairs at this point. (laughs) Um, So yeah, graduated in 2000. six, and then immediately moved to Washington, DC. And then in 2008, I moved to New York City, which is kind of a weird year to move because well, I didn't know that we we're going to have an economic downturn, but just so happened to occur shortly after I arrived, but it, it worked out okay. So I was in New York City for six years. And then I went to graduate school at Harvard and Cambridge. And then I moved back home to Detroit to work in city government in 2015. And then I moved to Chicago in 2019, but then I also still kind of live in Detroit because I have a place downtown. So it's a lot. I'm, I'm being a millennial right now. So it's cool.
2: It is cool. It's
1: cool. Well, it's all working together.
2: So when you say humble beginnings, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, to let people know where you really come from.
0: Oh, um, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh it's, so my great-grandfather moved from Georgia to Detroit in, actually about 100 years ago, to work for uh, you know the auto industry. And then um, separately, that's where Glanton Dowdell came from. Uh, he was created in Detroit in, in the mid-20s. So my grandparents and, and their family arrived in Detroit in 1946, and they bought a house on Sheridan Street on the east side between Forest and Canfield in 1947. And then I remember talking to my, one of my aunts somewhat recently about how it was actually an all white neighborhood that they integrated. And then she could see the neighborhood go from all white to all black from the time she was, you know, like could experience stuff as a little kid to like fifth grade. So by fifth grade, it was a completely black neighborhood. And then from there, as I understand it, it just, you know, the you know, just disinvestment continued to happen. And I think we all know about redlining and just all the issues that, that come with racism and, and bias and things of that nature. And so uh, like so many other American cities and, and neighborhoods that, you know, are now predominantly black, a lot of the the wealth that was intended just disappeared. And so the the neighborhood got, you know, so so bad that we ended up having to leave. So actually I also spent my first nine years in this house that was, you know, I could literally see, uh houses getting demolished around me. At this point, that particular street has like I don't know, maybe 10% of the houses still standing. And so that's what I mean by humble beginnings. In fact, the second house that I lived in from like 9 until uh 11 or 12, that house actually it's funny, I was driving around near my old elementary school yesterday and I was just, you know, kind of checking out the neighborhood. That house also was demolished. And so you know, 100% of the houses that I lived in in Detroit as a kid have been demolished. And so that's indicative of the kind of economic situation that, that we were in.
2: And like you said, divine. I'm like, yeah. it's, look at you now, Harvard grad, Cornell grad, Cranbrook Academy, you name the top schools that, are, that you have just, you know, blazed your path I've been, through. I've it's been very blessed. So. Yes, indeed. Yeah. indeed.
1: Well, have you identified, I think I know the answer to this question, have you identified your purpose, and can you share with us what that is?
0: Yeah. So my purpose is to improve the quality of people's lives by design, and so that's really rooted in you know that origination story. You know, wanting to initially be a doctor to help people, but then realizing that architecture is another means by which to do that. Also, I, I realized I wouldn't enjoy interacting with blood in that way. Like I remember watching a show and I was just like, no, that's not, that's not going to work. But I do think that, you know, improving people's lives is is something that architects have the potential to do. And so if we empower ourselves to to do that and, you know, work with a, a lot of other different types of professionals, like developers and attorneys and public officials, and, you know, just the whole ecosystem that, that helps to make the built environment what it is, uh, I think we can have a real impact on on making things better for for people, particularly, uh, you know, for people who look like us. And one of the things that, you know, I'm really also passionate about is improving diversity within the profession of architecture, uh, because I think that in order for us to better serve our communities, more of us from those communities need to be empowered to to do that work. And so as i think you both know that i was i was pr- pretty involved with, with noma the national organization of minority architects so uh so that's another kind of way that i spend time to make sure that communities are uh equipped with with folks who look like them to make the kind of difference that everyone i think is interested in
2: when i started architecture open i was very naive of the numbers of-
0: oh me too i had no idea <laughs>
2: So I was just like, I was we yes. the same
0: experience. Oh my gosh, I was like, I remember just being like so taken aback when I first found out about this. So, yeah, I'm I'm still taken aback, and it's been years.
1: Sandra and I didn't know that there were no black women architects practicing, you know, when we started college, or you know, right before we started college. Yeah. We're entering into a profession where there's nobody that looks like us who's done it before. Not in state.
0: In Michigan. In Michigan. Michigan, Right. Well, you all are trailblazers.
1: (laughs) But we didn't even really know where to go outside of Michigan. You know, Norma Sparrow, maybe. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We actually have been talking about this. It's just like coming into the profession with so much enthusiasm and just like, like you said, you ready to fix the world, right? Yeah. And you know, my thing was like, I know we are always going to be architects, right? Everybody lives in buildings, everybody uses buildings. Yeah. And then just to know that, you know, then I start going to school and to work, and I'm like, it's like, oh, it's only a couple of people here, a couple of people there that look like me, and it's just like, yeah, it really just, you know, took me back. And then it's like I'm still learning about it. Uh, like I so said, we met Linda Haith recently, and and found out, you know, she got licensed in 1983. And I'm like, I'm in junior high school thinking about being an architect and you just passed your exam. You were the first one. Yeah,
0: that was the same year that the Hudson's department store closed.
2: Ah, wow. Yep. It's like trying to put it into context, an architect coming through Detroit. Like you said, all of this disinvestment happening. You're you're hearing a lot of uh, issues that come up in the city about, you know, Coleman Young being mayor and, you know, the battle to get things done. And You really don't think about it as a kid about what's happening to the career of architecture, right? Or those architects that are going through that, right? It's like, we're great to be in the the city of design kind of world of Detroit and things are being pushed forward versus uh, they were going into uh, the end of a, you know, end and beginning of a a fight, right? To keep things alive and keep the city alive. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm learning so much just talking to other people, learning about, you know, their paths and you know, here. It's just, it puts so much context in me, but I was just, I felt so naive. So how, how was it when you got to college and how did that fuel the diversity thing for you?
0: So Cornell has, a uh, well, at least when I was in school, had a, generally a class of about 60 people. And my class has six, uh, actually we started with eight African-American students, which was like an anomaly. Like people were like, where did you all come from? This is crazy. Cause you know, eight, out of sixty, it's like a pretty strong set uh, in terms of representation. We we ended up losing two people to do other things, So we ended up with six people graduating, which is ten percent, which again is like unheard of. Granted, the year before us, it was like two people, and then the year after us, it was uh, actually Jonathan Moody was in that class after me. I think it's like him and two other people. So so again, you know, it's like we were somewhat of an anomaly, but it it did sort of um, initiate this thought. Yeah, maybe there should be more, not necessarily in our class, but just in terms of representation before us and after us. And just, you know, as we were learning more about the profession, you know, we heard, we didn't hear as much uh, or really anything about Black architects. Uh, although we did, so David Ajay did visit our school um, back then before he like really blew up. So that was cool. But we, you know, there weren't a lot of, you know, Black architects visiting. Um, you know, there, there weren't a lot of students, you know, besides our, um, our ginormous Norman's class, but you know, 10% it's, it's still like under the 14% in the U S but it was, I mean, compared to a lot of other places it was pretty strong. So actually that's how I got involved with NOMA. I went to the 2004 NOMA conference as a student. It's part of the student design competition. And that obviously opened up a whole new world for me. And then I've been on this wild journey since then.
2: Were you able to find any uh, mentors in college or any professor? Did you have any black professors?
0: Yeah, we had a couple of black professors. Uh, and also we had a somewhat engaged alumni community. So in fact, I actually ended up doing the Cornell and Washington program, which was a little bit like foreshadowing because the only thing that they offered at Cornell and Washington was government. And I was like, but I want to be in D.C. I mean, I guess I could study government and then I end up getting a, an MPA like years later. But the Cornell and Washington program offered these classes and you would you know, live in the Cornell Center. So that was like my way to get to, to D.C., but I didn't have an internship yet. And so um, one of the uh, black Cornell um, alums gave me a list of firms to call. And I remember basically cold calling these firms and like maybe the second or third one, um, this woman picked up the phone and I'm like, I'm nervous. I'm like, hi, my name is Kimberly Dowdell and I'm a third year Architecture student uh, looking for an internship. I'm a Cornell, I'm a student at Cornell. And this woman said, Hold on, please. And so she transferred me to this man who uh, said, Cornell, I went to Cornell. Why don't you come in for an interview? And I was just like, okay. And so then I come in and then he's sitting there. And then this other woman who also went to Cornell comes in singing in the alma mater. I haven't like even said anything yet. Like they're just super excited about Cornell. And that's like one of the things I like about Cornell. Everyone just loves other Cornellian, just like a whole thing. So needless to say, I got that internship and it was with McKissick and McKissick, which happens to be the first black firm in the United nice. States. So again, this is all divinely ordered. Like I couldn't have plan this. I swear I couldn't. And then I ended up sitting in it, or I shared a cubicle with Kathy Dixon, who is a former NOMA (laughs) president. And then she introduced me to Steve Lewis, another former NOMA president. And actually the the following summer I stayed in Kathy Dixon's guest room because the Cornell Washington program, you can only do it once. So I ended up coming back the following summer working for Steve at GSA and then staying in Kathy Dixon's guest room. And then when wow. I moved to New York, I ended up staying uh, for at least the first month, you know, I looked for an apartment with Steve Lewis's parents. So talk about leveraging the Noma, Noma network. I, I did all of that.
2: <laughs> that took it to what we say, Noma family, when you were yeah. staying at, at the
0: parents' house. Pretty <laughs> right. They adopted me. It was like a whole thing. Yeah.
2: But you stepped into a history lesson working from Kissick and McKissick, right?
1: I did. Yeah. Wow. That is so amazing. So I, when you were in college, did you have any leadership positions? Were you in NOMAS? Were you a leader in that organization or AIAS? Or? So at Cornell, we
0: had uh, what, what was called the Minority Organization of Architecture, Art and Planning, or MOAP, because uh, the Cornell College uh, where you know, architecture you know, is embedded is the College of Architecture, Art and Planning, so hence the name MOAP. And then uh, eventually that evolved into NOMAS, but it's basically the same genre of organization. So MOAP took the lead in in getting folks to participate in the NOMA conference, well, specifically the um, student design competition. And then we also put together uh, a symposium, you know, inviting guest speakers and stuff like that. So that was kind of like, you know, my early experience with event planning. And then the bigger thing that I did uh, in terms of leadership was I was actually President of my sorority Alpha Cap Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Saunders also my soror. Uh, well, technically, I was chapter basilis, which means president for everyone else. But yeah, that was that was just a great learning experience under my leadership. And you know, some of this the stuff that I had set forth, our chapter ended up getting chapter of the year, which is across the entire campus, which was pretty cool. So that kind of like built my leadership confidence quite a bit. And then I was uh, recognized. By uh, an organization called Sphinx Head, which is uh Cornell's oldest senior honor society, uh, as one of the top one percent of leaders at Cornell um in the senior class. So that was, you know, a nice recognition of the stuff that I had been doing with AKA and and you know, things within architecture and stuff like that. So um that kind of got me started on the leadership journey. In fact, actually, if I take it back, I was president of the uh youth usher board at my church when I was like seven. So I mean, that's kind of where it started. And then in high school, I was um, you know, involved in like team sports and I was, you know, a captain as a senior. Oh, I was a resident advisor because it was boarding school. And not only was I a resident advisor, I was head resident advisor. So lots of leadership experience leading up to college. And, you know, people were like, you know, how did you get to where you are? I mean, like I've had a ton of experience, <laughs> like a lot of different things have, have happened that kind of, you know, kind of built one on top of the other.
2: today's Spotlight, we're going to talk about Cranbrook Screws, which is a PK-12 private university located on a 319-acre campus in Bloomfield, Michigan, and it's right off of Woodward Avenue. Woodward Avenue is the main thoroughfare that kind of radiates out of downtown and all the way up roughly 30 miles to Bloomfield area. Approximately 40 acres of it puts together the Cranbrook Screws and Gardens. As of 2021, 1,600 students make up the Michigan's largest private school by enrollment in a single campus. The Cranbrook School for the Boys, which began its operation in 1927, was designed by the world-renowned Eli Saarinen. It was completed in 1928, and it was Saarinen's first executed architectural work in the United States. I have to pause there because I'm saying, man, as a black architect, I just can't imagine coming uh, from the United States into another country and getting a large architectural commission work. I have to just say that because it's a different world for Black architects right? not be able to do that. So I'm, I'm You have to be <laughs>
1: able to build the relationships with the people who have the money.
2: Yes. Yes. And that's the that's disadvantage to get the project started.
1: Right. Yeah. So that was a disadvantage for Black architects and continues to be a disadvantage you know if people don't see you as being as qualified to work on those projects those large projects
2: right and he um, and and that was just the beginning for him so like the Cranbrook school was named after Cranbrook England because that was the birthplace of the uh, founder of the the whole private institution mm-hmm. of Cranbrook uh, George Booth's father was born in, in Cranbrook uh, England and the Kingwood School for Girls uh, was designed by Saren as well. That opened in 1931. So they have a girl's school and a boy's school. And Kimberly Dowdell was able to attend this private high school, which was a gem, right? She had a full-ride scholarship to go there. I mean, this school is known for students that they take. It's buried in the arts, right? It is. Uh, they study history. They study religion. They study english but the art classes are the foundation of the whole school so drawing sculpture design weaving ceramics fashion design painting photography are the focus of that and i mean just for kim to get her education in high school and be immersed in design right immersed in design they live on campus they have a chef that actually prepares (laughs) that prepares their meals um I, i was able to go to this campus and really have a thorough tour of it because i was not exposed to it i don't know right if you were caring, no coming up <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> so com-
1: anything about cranbrook when i was coming i did know about the roper school which is nearby but okay. i didn't know okay. about cranbrook
2: yeah my my mom uh like i said she was a automotive worker and she was like i could pay help you pay for one choice of school in college i cannot pay for mm-hmm. any private anything, school you know any private school so mm-hmm. i didn't even look right and yeah. to be immersed in this just design-focused environment just just was the perfect wrapping to her to be the architect she is today. Mm-hmm. We went on a tour of, of the campus, I think it was back in 2018 uh, or 17. It was the AIA National Committee on Education uh, Design. Uh, it was called Educational Disparity Tour. So we started in Detroit Public Schools and took the tour and went from private universities to charter schools. And we ended off our conference in Cranbrook, right, and um, toured the boys' school and the girls' school, saw their learning environment, even how they learned in the classrooms, you know, having students sit in a circle versus sitting in rows, all of these dealt with the issues of disparity and difference in education, and just to see that within a period of a day, Mm -hmm. you know, you start out your morning in one school environment and end out your evening in a high-end school of, um, environment. Was well, the disparity tour, you know, related to
1: architecture education or just ed- education in general?
2: Actually, both. It was, um, well, actually, no, it dealt with educational design, right? Okay, and, and, sure. And, and that public school environment versus mm-hmm. you having, like, basically Eli and designing your school, right, mm-hmm. versus um, – y- You know the public bid system you have in in Detroit. You know for with the Detroit public schools, but we we started out at the Detroit um, High School of Performing Arts, which is a lead accredited school Mm -hmm. uh, with the Detroit public schools. So that was great. We started out there, and you know that was a big deal to get that through and built in the the city uh, to have us. You know almost a six story building all devoted to arts and culture, but just to describe a little bit more of the Cranbrook campus I mean the world famous Cranbrook Academy of Arts is there the uh Cranbrook Natatorium which was designed by Todd Williams and Billy Tillerson is there Stephen Hull designed a school there I think the School of Science Mm -hmm. and then Elo Sarandon and his whole collaborative circle that he created with all the architects that worked for his practice after his father died and we ended out our lecture that day with Caesar Pelli, who was an employee. Wow. Uh, of Elo and S- 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 right at the end of the day, talking about working for him and actually how it formed his practice and how his work came about. Just having, having that circle of influence, having that body of architects to interact with. Right. Just, so if you look um,
1: at the designers and architects who... Uh, were in that network in the 1950s ni- through 1970s mm-hmm. and beyond at Cranbrook. Aero and Yamasaki. Yeah, Ruth,
2: Alexander Gerard.
1: Yeah, Ruth Adler Schnee, Charles and Ray Eames. Yes. You know, all yeah. in that circle, like he said, circle of architects and designers who were so influential in the modernist movement and, other design schools of architecture and interior design and textiles and residential design and so many things that uh, were prominent and continue to be prominent and have a resurgence now in the design world, just for them to all be in that one place just north of Detroit here in Michigan. Right.
2: I mean, there were um, shows that they put on at the Detroit Institute of arts, you know, people were able to come see their exhibits of their thought process and modern design. All of that was happening in Detroit, just like so just north of Detroit. That mid-century modern push that happened in Michigan all happened with this think tank of all these individuals, right? It it really kind of blew a lot of people's mind when we had our NOMA conference here in in 2012 and we toured Cranbrook and we toured they did not know that all of this had happened on this campus so putting together the city of design, UNESCO designation for the city of Detroit, these were key elements that went into that application Mm -hmm. that um, Mm -hmm. that Need to get out to the world for them to understand just the rich history of design in, in, in the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when people think of design and Detroit, you know, automotive is at the top of the list. Yes. Um, but the architecture and the interiors and all of the craft design that also came out of this area is outstanding uh, and and could possibly override the automotive you know, because yeah, yeah. there's so many other disciplines that kind of override that, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The whole furniture industry. Yeah. Um, Herman Miller and Noel being uh, in Grand Rapids. Right. You know, Michigan. Right. Steel uh, case. It, and yeah. I mean, and then, like I said, some of the same people who were at Cranbrook ended up with their textiles and everything being implemented at, at Herman Miller and the furniture designs that came out of there. So right. it was just so much happening in Michigan. And like I said, that rich design legacy is just everything we want to talk about on this podcast right. and just let everybody realize the context that we're trying to actually uplift black architects works and voices um, in this narrative as well, because that has not been uh, as told as well as some of the like stories of Cranbrook and the great work that have happened there.
1: Yeah. And as much as uh, we admire and are talking now about the work at Cranbrook and the the network in the circle. There were no Black architects in that network, network, right? So we want to lift up the Black architects who were working during that time. And in future podcasts, you will hear more about the architects that were doing work uh, around the time that Errol Sarnin and his colleagues were uh, working at Cranbrook.
2: So, yeah, if you haven't heard about it, you know, Google uh, Cranbrook Schools, take a look of all of this great body of work that's happening up there. Uh, if you're ever in town, it is a great campus to walk and tour, see the gardens and the fountains and yeah, sketching. Oh, if, you, if we have some urban sketches out there, that is a great place to go sketch. Yes.
1: <laughs> all right. Now more with Kim Dowdow.
2: I'm actually talking to a, a young soror now at uh, Bowling Green University who's uh Aka as well, and it seems like it helps get you out of that architectural bubble. Like we were it talking does. about, you you don't know how alone you are until you get there, and then it did help me expand beyond the College of Architecture, and I felt connected with other people on the campus. So that that definitely definitely helped out a lot. So it seems like the same effect with you too. Yeah, I
0: highly recommend it.
2: I've had this conversation with like people in the office before. It's like every time you make that step up, you know, it's almost like most people and it doesn't sound like this happens with you, but let me see, you have to make a mental adjustment, right? To say, okay, I'm going to a a next level of doing things on a different platform. Is that process happened for you for each of these leadership jumps?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's one of the things, like I'm often not actually pursuing these things. Like people come to me and say, hey, we think you should do this. That happened with NOMA. Um, I, th- I think you both know that I'm running for AA president right now, and we'll find out the results tomorrow. Similar with that, I was not anticipating running for AA president, but I was strongly invited to consider doing so. And, and I did. And so I think that, you know, when I'm approached, it, it, it makes me think, okay, well, other people see something in me that maybe I didn't necessarily see. Um, and so let me think about it pray about it, like, make sure this aligns with what I want to be doing with my life and and move forward. And, you know, when I am successful in these different pursuits, I, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm like, I've never, like when I became NOVA president, I was like, I've never been president of a national organization before. Like, how does this right. work? Right. And uh, I remember, ta- you know, talking to Steve Lewis about this. He's like, oh, just be yourself. It's fine. And I mean, he's right. It was fine. Like, um, you did excellent. You did oh, amazing. thank Good. you. <laughs>
2: And it's, and it's like leading through like I was the Noma Detroit president through the recession, right? And out of the recession. So like you were president of NOMA during the pandemic, right? And still
0: And the racial awakening.
2: Right. So as, as Steve Lewis would say, the dual pandemics, right? So you were you were guiding us through that period in time. And that's something difficult to do, right? You're thinking about others and still figuring out how to move the pathway forward. So that shows that you have a lot of vision and your personality because you said be yourself right is moving you to move a group of people forward so I'm actually very interested in how your power is continuing to grow because it amazes me just oh thank uh, you like I'm to interested stress.
0: too I'm like I don't know like what's gonna happen tomorrow <laughs> let's start with that but <laughs> literally
2: tomorrow
1: right so.
0: <laughs> yeah like I'll know by this time tomorrow like what is happening so it's exciting
1: I will say though you know during the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic, you were one of the first architects to come out and make a connection between architecture and health disparities in the African-American community in the Architects Journal article. And I appreciate you talking with our Space Lab community about that. Yeah, absolutely. Making that connection was difficult for a lot of people, especially a lot of people that are not part of the African American community. And I appreciate you making that connection because the places that people live, the communities where they live are a huge factor in their health.
0: Yeah. In fact, in Chicago, where I now live part of the time, there's a um, Time magazine article from 2019 that shows a basically a heat map of life expectancy. And so um, Chicago, generally speaking, the north side is kind of associated with being predominantly white, and then the south side and the west sides are predominantly African American or communities of color, generally speaking. And there's a 30-year life expectancy gap between the most, you know, wealthy white communities and you know one of the the poorest uh, communities, which happens to correlate to the African American community. And so, if you think about 30 years, I mean, that's pretty crazy. And specifically, you know, 60 years was one of the, you know, the, the numbers t- tied to a Black community in 90 years was tied to the more affluent white community. And so I think that we have to really examine how, like, how do we get here? Well, I think we know, but I, th- I think taking the time to really outline what happened and more importantly, how we can address that. And that's, that's not something that architects can do alone. Obviously, you know, I think we have a lot to contribute to the conversation, but you know we really need to look at interdisciplinary problem solving and, and also working with the various sectors: the public sector, the private sector, and the uh, the four impact sector, as I like to call it now. But yeah, I mean, there's there's that's like that's a problem, and I think that we have to be intentional about trying to solve it because if we don't, then you know we're going to continue to see these inequities play out.
2: I, I see you too have a, a, a fondness for maps because I've seen you post uh, other maps from. Yes, I love uh, New maps. York Chai, right? New York Times, different things. So it, it it just makes me think about like how how you're processing all of this data. I'm like, what is, what is does Kim Dowdale do on the weekend? Is she like <laughs> looking through all of this data, trying to think about how does she move the needle forward in the profession? <laughs> I,
1: I don't. It's just
0: it's one of those things that. Um, you know I'm a, as an architect I, i'm a pretty visual person and maps just tell such rich stories in like just one eye shot you can see so much and so there's a saying that a picture is worth a thousand words well i think a map is probably worth a million if you you know if it has the right kind of data outline so i love maps
2: yeah i'm kind of interested in a map of uh diversity in architecture because like one of the things that we've kind of been looking at because you know the wire design party started in in michigan with our studies it's like Mm -hmm. and and i think you know this you take the 554 licensed african-american women now and it's only 14 in detroit you start to break that number out and Mm -hmm. see that it's going to be in concentrated areas where we get this and other than that other parts of the country are not even touched by black architects and women of color and how do you fix problems nationwide right with design and and have still that disparity in locations where it's not even someone who looks like us.
0: Well, that's actually one. And I mean, this isn't like a campaign thing because by the time this is all edited, we'll know what is happening. But that's one of the reasons why I decided to enter the race because there's never been a black woman as AI president in the 165 year history of the organization. And one of my, uh, well, actually my primary campaign slogan is envision new possibilities. So, you know, how do we spark you know, a new generation of of young people, women, people of color, I mean, really anybody, but for in particular, Black women, young Black girls seeing themselves represented, I think that um, representation matters. And so if there's, uh, you know, a whole crop of people that are going to be interested in architecture by virtue of me sitting in that seat, hopefully, then I, I think it, it'll all be worth it.
2: Agree, agree. I mean, just this- you're like Obama, right, Derek, the audacity, right, <laughs> to, to to hope for this. It's like, um, because it is a big leap and, and everything you've been touching in your career seems like it's been a big leap. So I, I, like I said, I just admire just watching you. I tell you, every time I talk to you, I, I can't realize how much younger than me you are. Oh. Like, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> she's blowing my mind every time I talk to her. So
1: it's just so wonderful. Well,
0: thank you. I mean, I ha- I have to say, like, I have older siblings. You know, my actually, you're probably the same age as my siblings, and so... I, you know, how a little, yeah, I almost had like the, what do you call it, Notes you know, for a lot of stuff. So I, I got the advanced track.
2: Yeah, my, my son's like that. My daughter was like, I was not doing this when I was 13. What are you doing? You're, like, you're over there creating a whole store. What are you doing? I was like So it is, it is good. So we, like you said, we don't know how tomorrow is going to come out. But what do you see from a national perspective, the Black architect fitting into the national narrative in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to say that one, I will be elected tomorrow, and two, that will you know open up more um, more possibilities for people to imagine themselves in this profession. So I think it's going to take a while because it takes at least five, six, or seven years for someone to study architecture, you know, to get an accredited degree, and then uh, anywhere from one to three years, I think on average, to you know do licensure, uh, like specifically, you know, the experience and the the examination process. Uh, I think on average it takes someone 12 years to become an architect from start to finish, and that's that's not even including you know being fortunate enough to be exposed to what an architect is uh, at some point in elementary school or middle school or high school. And so it's going to take a while to get there. But I think that if we if there are organizations like Noma that are are really geared toward uh, ensuring that the young generation, specifically you know the middle school, high school students are um, served by our NOMA Project Pipeline summer camps. But also I think AIA is increasingly getting involved with K K through 12 education um, so that just a wider spectrum of people will know what architecture is so they can make an informed decision going into to college or even graduate school. And so I think as we look at where we want to see the future of the Black architect, I think it's going to be, I think we are going to to have more black architects uh, than you know than we've seen in the past. I mean, we've been at two percent of the population of architects for you know for as long as we've been counting, which is about fifty years. In fact, while I was Noma president, we created a, an, an initiative with the AIA Large Term Roundtable to double the number of black architects between at that point twenty nineteen and twenty thirty. Here we are, twenty twenty two, so we only have eight years left. But there are Real resources being rallied to increase, you know, awareness of the profession, um, support scholarships, like, and not just NOMA and LFRT, but a lot of different firms are taking the initiative to invest in student scholarships. I think more HBCUs are getting, you know, resources, uh, you know, that they hadn't been getting otherwise. So I think there's a concerted effort to at least reach the 2030 challenge, which is to double the number of Black architects. That I mean, that gets us to basically about five thousand, which is still not that many. I mean, there's there's like hundred and twenty thousand uh, architects in the U.S. However, there are actually more attorneys in the state of California. So we are a relatively small profession. Uh, but getting back to your uh, your question, I think that there will be more black architects. But I think we're going to have to find you know very specific ways of getting and keeping people engaged because I think we have. We have this habit of, like, attracting people to the profession and then losing them to other professions. And we have to figure out how to stop doing that.
2: Yeah, res- recessions are not helping that part, I tell you. It's like, no.
1: <laughs> Setting that goal uh, as NOMA president was a big accomplishment, something to strive for, something for all of us to strive for. But what would you say is your, was your biggest success of your NOMA presidency?
0: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm proud that we, you know, made the decision to, to kind of put that, that goalpost out there and, you know, we're nowhere close to, well, we're getting closer to 2030, but, you know, we're still pretty far out. So, uh, it remains to be seen, you know, how things will materialize, but I certainly hope that, you know, we'll continue to see momentum and ultimately achieve that goal in terms of like more sort of tangible results. I would say. One of the bigger things that I'm proud of, al- along with some other things that I'll mention in a moment, but increasing our membership was, was really uh, something that I was interested in doing from the very beginning. I just didn't realize it would be so wildly successful. Um, when I started out, we had 902 members. So this was like December 31st, 2018. That was the number. And then I said, okay, well, I would like to get to 1,200 members in the first year and 1,500 members by the end of my second year. And it turns out we blew past 1500 the first year. So then I set a goal for 2000 members for the second year, and then we ended up with 2464, which was pretty amazing, um, resulting in uh, over 270% increase from, you know, where we started. So that was great. And, you know, people asked me, well, how how did that happen? And I think part of it was, you know, intentionality. Uh, just saying, you know, I would like to do this and I need the board to help me do it. And the board, including Sandra, Sandra, thank you for your service, uh, you know, rallied around that in different ways. But also I was intentional about being visible. Well, in 2019, I physically went to a lot of, you know, different chapters to kind of drum up, you know, just excitement about NOMA and talk about what we're doing, talk about what we're planning, talking about, you know, the things that, uh, you know, that we are prioritizing to be of, of greater service not just to the members but to the profession and our communities. And then in 2020 obviously had to pivot to more virtual sessions, but you know the big thing is engagement and I brought this from my uh my managing principal at HOK in Chicago. He would write to us every single day just you know it wouldn't necessarily be a long note just be like you know and this is when the the pandemic started hey folks this is what's going on or you know, I was thinking about this or here's a book recommendation or whatever, just, you know, just to kind of keep us engaged. And so I took a page from that playbook and actually uh, wrote a note to the NOMA membership every Thursday or maybe Friday morning, if I like had too much going on on Thursday. And, I, you know, I, I think that was really helpful in just keeping people connected and engaged and just knowing that your leadership is thinking about you and, uh, you know, trying to help everyone uh, navigate these very uncertain times. So I think communication is really important. And just making people understand that you know you're there, uh, even if you don't have the answers. Like I, I couldn't solve what was going on in the world, but just know I'm right here with you, thinking about uh, how how can people get access to those PPP funds, or what is this virus exactly? What should you be doing? What should you not be doing? And So just sharing stuff like that, even if if it's not directly related to architecture. And then we have what um, uh, we call the Stay All In series. So my platform was all in for Noma, signaling everyone's welcome to join. And also uh, it's an acronym for Access, Leadership, and Legacy. And then uh, kind of a play on those words, stay all in, because obviously people just stay in the house during the pandemic. Uh, we wanted to offer different speaking opportunities for uh, subject matter experts or you know, just basically community building opportunities during the pandemic. So I think people vote with their feet, right? And so if they like what they see, they will renew their membership or join the organization. And we saw a lot of that.
2: Yeah, I am mean, excited. Just, uh, I mean, the possibility of AIA, I'm just totally, I I, I could see growth in, in diversity, minority as well as. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, I'm excited, too. Like a lot of people have said, oh, I might actually join the AIA if you become president. And I'm like, Why, wait, you're not a member now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you would be surprised at a number of people with RA behind their name. Yeah. So hopefully we
0: can uh, we can turn that around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: So you've you mentioned a lot of success. I mean, can you tell us about, I don't even know if I could ask this question, an obstacle that you encountered through your career. I and mean, was any of those obstacles related to your race?
0: Um, I can't say that the obstacle that I have in mind uh, is related to race, but I will say that um, when I was in college, I really thought that I was being led to study law. Like I really wanted to get a law degree from um from georgetown specifically because i had a real estate land use and urban development track because i wanted to come back to detroit after school and like because i learned that a lot of real estate developers have a legal background and so that program seemed right up my alley i applied three years in a row and they kept rejecting me and i was like so upset and then i realized that that wasn't part of the plan. And so I just kind of went back to doing what I was doing. Actually, I actually had to finish my architecture license, which I finished in 2013. So I'm number 295 in terms of black women are licensed. And then right after I got licensed, I got a full tuition fellowship to go to Harvard. So I guess the, the message here is sometimes when you think you're supposed to be doing something and it doesn't work out, oftentimes there's something better coming. You just have to be a little bit more patient. So, so the failure for me was getting rejected three times, which hurt my feelings. But then um, I ended up not uh, you know, not having to, to pay for grad school and you know, had a great experience. And so I think it all worked out.
2: I think so.
1: <laughs> I would say so.
2: <laughs> wow, Kim. I, I, every time I talk to you, it's the same thing. I've just blown away. Uh, blown away. Oh, thank you. So we have this um, timeline that we present in each of our PowerPoints from the Y Design Party. and it talks mm-hmm. about the state of the Black architect in Detroit. It talks about Nathan Johnson writing an article in 1969. It was two percent, but it was only 14 licensed African American architects. Period in the state of Michigan at that time. Let's start with Detroit, the state of Black architects in Detroit. What what have you seen over the years, and then what would what would you advise for like someone like? Me as Midwest Vice President of NOMA or our NOMA Detroit Chapter President, what should we be doing to help the State of the Black Architecture in Detroit?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as I mentioned, the, let's call it, gestation period of an architect is pretty significant, 12 years to like even get into the the game. Um, So that means, you know, those who are in, you know, we're in it, um, but we need to really focus on those who are coming up behind us. And so I think we have to, really promote it. I think we have to do a better job of being excited about the work that we're doing and letting people know. In fact, that's one of the things I like to do as AIA president, really, you know, raise the profile of the architect and the public eye. And I think that, you know, Detroit has a very unique story in that, you know, we are a predominantly African-American city, a large city at that. And so to look at all the opportunity to help rebuild certain parts of the city that, you know, that had undergone pretty drastic disinvestment, um, you know, how do we empower Black architects in particular to be a part of the solution to the problems that, you know, we've been experiencing, you know, virtually our, our entire lives. Um, and so I think one, doing the work, which a lot of people are doing, and then two, telling those stories, like really, you know, hyping it up because what we're doing is exciting. Um, we just need other people to know that. Um, and so that'll inspire the youth. In fact, a longtime NOMA member and dear friend Prescott Rivas, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, he was a huge advocate of getting Young people and like the youth, uh, he was very active in Oakland, California, and you know he he called young people potential spatial activists to like really empower them to to understand their community and how uh, architecture and and other aspects of the built environment can help shape you know the way that that people live, work, and play. Uh, and then what's really great about empowering young people in that way is that they go home and they talk to their parents, they talk to their siblings about what they did in, you know, in school or in, in camp or whatever. And then that sort of raises the uh, the conversation about what's happening in our community. So I think that we just have to be really intentional about promoting our work and telling the stories. And uh, I think that will set us on a better trajectory for a more diverse uh, and exciting future for Black architects in Detroit.
2: I totally agree with that. I think, uh, I don't think we celebrate the fact that we have made it as architects. You really just made, I know Karen and I feel a lot better. Like that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, right? Tell the stories of of people excited. Yeah. 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 It's like, so this is, uh, I think that's very powerful. And, and you're right. I mean, kids coming home talking to their parents about their neighborhoods, their environment and how we can make a change. It's always going to be positive. Even if it's not the architectural needle, it's going to move possibly future developers or future you know, uh, other informed
0: clients. I mean, the, I mean, the other thing that, um, I would say is architecture is so cool because we can see the future. Like how many other people can actually see the future? Like in terms of the built environment, like we'll take a trip to a site and we'll start to envision what can happen there. Most people can't do that. We're kind of special
2: we say superpowers uh, it's a superpower like, for sure. <laughs> Whatever, <we say> <laughs>
1: yeah. is there anything that you would like to add that we have not asked um we know what's next for you <laughs> <laughs> we, know, we know what's next
0: yeah i feel pretty good about it like i mean i actually have no way of knowing but i just i feel in my spirit like this is gonna work out and if it if it happens to be like the Georgetown situation, then something better is going to happen. So it doesn't even matter.
2: I love your attitude. I love it. It's reassuring every time I talk with. it. I'm looking forward to just what's next for Kim Dowdell, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm there, still a fan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm really, you know, really delighted that you know you you two are the powerhouse duo that's doing all these great things that really highlight history and you know history in the making. So thank you for your efforts. You know, in addition to the work that you do for your your day jobs or you know your entrepreneurial ventures, like the, I know this is like on top of it
1: all. So thank you.
2: Uh, well, thank you. We well, we love it.
1: Picture. We love what we're doing, and we love hearing people's stories and interviewing people like you and. Hearing the backstory, hearing how you got started and the impact I, that you're making.
2: I think one thing we're definitely changing with the podcast and the work that Noir Design Party has been doing is that people are not taken aback like we were when we came into the profession, right? They're going to come into the profession informed and ready to continue to help move the needle. area. So that would yeah. help grow the numbers right there alone.
0: Yeah. And just more people having access to information about NOMA and AIA as resources yeah you know because I think mentorship is so critical to success. I mean, I wouldn't have been close to you know where I am today, you know, were it not for the folks that that I mentioned uh, and so many others who i you know I can't it would take like another hour to list all the people who have contributed to to all of this but um yeah, mentorship is is important, and young people need to know. Um, you know, how to look for a mentor, how to, you know, engage a mentor, how to, you know, basically speak up and, and ask for what they need. So that's, that's something that, you know, hopefully this resource and, and other, other things out there can, can give people that intel.
2: Yeah. I, I know I've been hearing, like I said, a lot of hints of, like you were talking about the large firm round table and other AIA components uh, that are doing things in the country. Mm-hmm. Like it was AIA New York that had the the scholarship to help pay off someone's student loan right of, yeah. somebody of, of color then that would help that hurdle when a recession comes like people are really thinking out of the box to make this happen and that's what that's the kind of thinking and the kind of efforts we need to help you know this profession change so i'm glad that i'm seeing that
1: yeah well, we won't hold you much longer. We know that you have had a busy, busy <laughs> several weeks.
0: Yeah.
2: And we, and we want you to sleep well tonight.
1: Yes. Thank
2: you. <laughs> yes, I will.
1: I will. And we
0: will be awaiting the news tomorrow evening. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Wonderful chatting and wishing you well with all the interviews and, you know, the overall project that you're working on.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them.
1: If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming Contemporary and Trailblazing Architects.
2: Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the
1: stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries.
0: Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the
1: untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had
0: field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously, they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else.
1: While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, yep. just taking it day by day. Yes. But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century.
0: From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe
2: now on your favorite podcast
0: platform.
1: Let's fill the gaps in
0: history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be
1: part of a movement to expand industry narratives.